0: Good morning. Uh, Open your Bibles now to the 15th chapter of the book of 1st Corinthians. Perhaps the classical location in the Bible to talk about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Um, As a matter of fact, chapter 15 is worthy of a pretty sizable series of sermons, but today we're going to be looking at the first 11 verses of... First Corinthians 15 and while we're reading it I want you to think with me about the following question what is the bare minimum a person has to believe in order to become a Christian what is the bare minimum a person must believe in order to become a Christian because that is one of the things we're going to look at this morning. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 1. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that is Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father, we do pray that as we Spend this time together examining the truth of 1 Corinthians 15 verses 1 through 11. That the Holy Spirit who inspired these words, that self-same spirit who indwells us, would open our eyes, that we would be given illumination uh, because we live in a dark world. We ourselves have our vision clouded by our own sinfulness, And so we do pray today that the Spirit would break through and we would get it, we would grasp it, we would hear it, and we would be moved to do what it calls us to do. To you alone be all glory and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So what are the core beliefs of Christianity? What is it that is bottom line, non-negotiable, foundational. Uh, If you cut Christianity, what does it bleed? Um, What do you have to believe in order to be a Christian? And if you're going to ask that question, there's really no better spot to go than the spot we are at today in the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, And it begins with Paul telling us Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, by this you were saved. In other words, Paul is saying, I had received it, it was something I received, it was something I passed on to you, and it is of first importance. And at the uh, end he says so whether I or they meaning other apostles this is what we preach this is what you believe. Scholars tell us that there is a body of truth from verses three and following that was passed on as the gospel tradition very early in the life of the church very early on in the book of Acts. And so Paul is not saying this gospel I am preaching to you is something that was generated by me in my own ideas it is a body of tradition or belief that has been passed on and so it carries with it authority and it's a great place to answer the core questions regarding Christianity and so what Paul is giving us here is not only a gospel presentation but he's saying here's the gospel I preached to you I received it you believed it it saved you but he's also speaking in the book of 1 Corinthians and there is a scholarly consensus, growing scholarly consensus, that 1 Corinthians was w- written somewhere between 15 and 20 years uh, after the death of Christ. It's a very old, very uh, probably the oldest book in the New Testament and so therefore ranks early in its uh, attestation. And if that's the case, then Paul talks about, this is what I did before. Remember, I came before, her. I preached to you, I gave you a summary of the gospel. It was given to me, I received it, I gave it to you, you believed it, it saved you. He's talking about something that had happened just a handful of years after the death of Jesus Christ. And so what we have in 1 Corinthians 15 is a summary and if you want to get down to the foundations, if you want to answer the question, what is Christianity all about? What, is, what a Christian believe? What is the irreducible core? You must believe to be a Christian and to have real spiritual life. Here it is. Right here. And it's important to listen carefully today and not get caught up in distinctions of denominations, etc., uh, but rather... Uh, major on the majors and uh, there are a lot of things that Christian believes and there are a lot of different branches of Christianity some of them probably very dear to your heart Uh, but you should really not press uh, beliefs that a lot of other Christians don't share we should major on the majors and that's what we're going to do today so when people talk to me about Christianity and they're skeptical and they don't really believe I have to ask them the following question question well what do you think Christianity teaches they tell me and usually as gently as possible I will respond there's not a single Christian I know that believes that because people are quite confused believe it or not about what Christianity teaches um, Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a great Welsh preacher, uh, put it in another way. He says, do you really think you understand the Christianity you're rejecting when you reject it? He would say to people, do you consider yourself to be a Christian? They would respond, yes or no. He'd say, why? And they would say, well, I do think I'm a Christian. I think I'm trying as hard as I can to live according to the teaching of the Bible. I'm trying very hard to be like Christ. I'm trying very hard to surrender myself and be like him. Dr. Lloyd-Jones said if somebody gives an answer like that, he knows that even though they're very typical, this person does not really understand the gospel. They don't understand the core teaching of Christianity. This is the gospel. What is it? Well, we'll move right through it quickly here. We'll have four things to say about it. There are four parts in this text that teach us what the gospel is. The first, the gospel is about Jesus. Secondly, it's about sin and substitution. Thirdly, it's about history and resurrection, which we celebrate today. And it's about astonishing, transforming grace. That's what the gospel is. So let's jump right into it. The gospel is about Jesus. Paul says, for what I received and passed on to you is of first importance. And he begins the summary by saying that Christ did certain things. Actually, everything else in the whole paragraph is a set of clauses and phrases that explain to us Christ. They all point back to the person of Christ. The gospel is Christ. The gospel is Jesus Christ. It's all about him. The core of uh, the word gospel, many people understand that the word gospel usually means joyful news or glad tidings. Um, And though many people understand the word means that, in the Greek word, uh, technically means good news or a good message. It was actually used to, and listen carefully to this, it was actually used, the word gospel, to announce a history-changing event. It usually was used to announce something like the coronation of a new king or the defeat of an invading army or some major news event. And so when you hear the word gospel, me say, what is the gospel? It's not advice. It's not a new set of rules, it's not information about teaching you something that you can live by necessarily, but rather the gospel is not steps to anything, it's not principles you apply to your life, but rather the gospel is something outside of you. The gospel is announcement of a major life-changing event that has to do with Jesus. Which is why it's good news because if it ever has to do with us and rest upon us and our ability to perform it, that's bad news. That's not good news. That's bad news. The worst news. And so it w- uh, the core Christian teaching is gospel. Then right away we're confronted with what makes Christianity different from every other religion. All other religions contain narratives or stories about their founders, of course, and all other religions tell stories and have narratives about the lives of their founders, but the founders of all other religions are usually teachers, not saviors. Because they're teachers and not saviors, their life stories are not the core of the core of those religions. For example, The core of the core of those religions, like the five pillars of Islam, the eightfold path to enlightenment of Buddhism, the core of the core of those religions is always a set of directions about what you must do to reach whatever goal they tell you you want. And since the founders are teachers, the core of the core of those religions is a set of directions that you have to perform. The core of core of Christianity is a gospel. This is not a set of directions about what you must do, but rather an account of what has been done for you. Okay? Are you following with me? It's not advice. It's not advice about what you must do. It's news about what has been done. In fact, one of the most striking things about this whole passage, from verse 3 all the way to the end of this description of the gospel, there is nothing in here about what you must do. In fact, the gospel in here doesn't even contain that you must repent or believe. Now, other places in Scripture tell us we must repent and believe, but those are not the gospel, but rather our response to the gospel. It's not actually part of the gospel. Why? Because the gospel is that nothing you can do, nothing you will do, nothing you have ever done can be the basis for your acceptance with the God revealed in Holy Scripture. It all happens because of what Jesus Christ has done. Nothing you can do can ever be the basis for God accepting you. Let me repeat that again. Nothing you can ever do can be the basis for your acceptance with God. It all comes through what Jesus Christ has done for us. Says, Pastor, you're, you're beating the horse up there. I think it's already dead. No, I'm trying to break through. I'm trying to break through because I know how my heart is, and I know how your heart is because it's just like mine. And we need to hear this. We need to believe it. It all comes through what Jesus Christ has done. So even our repenting, even our believing, isn't actually part of the gospel technically. It's a response to the gospel. Of course, the gospel does bring huge, massive changes to our lives. It makes us agents of reconciliation and love in the world. And it profoundly changes character. It changes the very structure of our identity. It changes the very pathways of our hearts. It changes the way our hearts work. Yet those are the results of the gospel. You never find the authors in Scripture, the apostles, or Paul, loading into the gospel as if that's part of it. In a sense, the gospel is Jesus Christ. Never forget that. The gospel is about a person who did a work who can save you by virtue of who he is and what he's done. That is the only good news there is. Nothing else is good news in any other religion or any other church. It's what Jesus has done on your behalf. So the gospel, number two, is about sin and substitution. What's the first thing we're told about Jesus? Well, it says that Christ died for our sins. He's speaking here of sin and substitution. First of all, sin. The first thing we're told about what Jesus came to do was to deal with sin. We are uninformed, and we need wisdom. We are sufferers. We need help. We need uh, support. We need relief, yes. But what we're learning here is that, first of all, we are sinners who need salvation that is the fundamental primary thing that is to say sin is our most fundamental human problem and it is not the world around us that is our primary human problem the primary human problem is within me it's me it's my sin that's the fundamental human problem Now, that takes a little bit of explanation, and you say, well, why would you say that, Pastor? Well, first of all, sin means that if there is a God who created you, if there is a God who sustains you, every single second that keeps you actually together, you may say, well, maybe that's gravity, Pastor. Well, okay, but where's that from? Or the way electrons stay in orbit around the nucleus, what's keeping that together? You are being held together right now in your seat every second by God. If there is a God who created you and who sustains you and who does all that, you owe him and I owe him everything and we owe it to him not just to pray when we're in trouble or something like that we owe it to live for him to live for him totally sin is the teaching of the bible you know this that we don't live for him we don't live for god we don't live for our neighbors we live for ourselves first we live selfishly we ruined the world That's sin. The world originally created was a beautiful, perfect, harmonious paradise. And when Adam and Eve sinned, sin and the power of it was let loose throughout all of creation. And thus, instead of a beautiful, harmonious creation, it is filled with chaos and brokenness. And so, Martin Luther put it this way, he said, the problem with me and every other person I know is that we are incurvatus in se, and that's Latin for we are all curved in upon ourselves. Meaning what? We're all self-centered, and that is a problem because of the human problem, the fundamental nature of sin. So." To say he died for sin means that our fundamental problem has been addressed. Everything else comes from that. Because not only is sin our fundamental problem, but alienation is our condition. We are alienated from the Father, our Maker. There's a barrier there. And Jesus came to do something about it. Before he can do anything else, he has to deal with that. And imagine you have a friend, and you've been friends for a good long time. And something changes. First, you notice that your friend uses things you give your friend without acknowledgement. He never says, thank you. He never says, oh boy, I needed that. I'm so glad you gave me that. And then it gets worse. You find out that this, your friend is breaking promises. And then he's lying to you. And finally, it gets terrible. Your friend embezzles money from you because you're in business together. Or he just steals from you and robs from you. I had a roommate one time, I can identify with this story, who stole my ATM card, found the uh, code, and was robbing me blind. And I was a young single guy, you know, young single guy working. I had money. I wasn't even thinking about money. I had money, didn't know what to do with it. And so all of a sudden from the bank, I started getting all these checks coming back insufficient funds and I said they're making a mistake obviously so I went to check and they said no sir Mr. Posey this is the balance of your account and it was like a dollar and 30 cents and I'm in a big hole so I said well I haven't he said well there have been a lot of ATM withdrawals and I said really and they said yeah we have a camera you want us to look see if it's you so they did and it wasn't me It was my roommate. So to say that we were alienated was an understatement. (laughs) It was an understatement. It was broken and it was bad. And so let's say that that did happen to me, which it did, and this roommate comes to me and he sits down and says, well, you know, Tim, I'd really like to stay friends with you. I'll try to do better. I'll try to live better. I'm very sorry. What are you going to say? You'll use your own words, but essentially you're going to say to him, we are in a state of alienation. (laughs) It is both legal and personal. And what you're going to say is, look, I know you're sorry. I guess you're sorry, of course. But if we're ever going to be friends again, this state of alienation has got to go away. You will have to be sorry, but it won't be enough just to do better. We're going to have to do about what you did to me what are you going to do about it? You've robbed me. There's a debt. There's a crime that's been committed. Bad things have happened. There's an injustice that has to be dealt with. If we're ever going to be friends again, personal and legal, of course, God, with him, it would be writ infinitely larger. We have committed against the creator, cosmic treason because we have an infinite God, we have an infinite debt, we have an infinite crime, and there is a barrier. That is the reason Jesus could not come as a teacher. Teachers come and say, here's how you can be sorry and do a little better, but that doesn't deal with the problem. It doesn't deal with the alienation, does it? It deals with the barrier. It doesn't deal with the barrier. Jesus came to deal with the barrier how? by substitution substitution the little word for is not really very uh, revealing to us because of our English word for covers such an enormous range of meanings you actually have to sit and think and reflect before you know in what way something is for something else there are all sorts of categories Fortunately, in the original language, Greek, they had more prepositions that served this. And the preposition used here in this passage of Christ dying for our sins is the Greek word hooper. Hooper, which means on the behalf of or in the place of as a substitute. This is saying that Jesus Christ died on our behalf. He was a substitute. He died instead of us. He took what we deserved. In other words, Jesus took our place, the place we deserve to be, cast out uh, on the cross. If we believe in him, then we get the place he deserved at the table, in the family. The love of a child of God. God made him sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now there's a ton of different metaphors we could talk about uh, regarding this concept of what happened on the cross. There are uh, marketplace metaphors and uh, power metaphors and and, uh, all kinds of other ways, law court metaphors. Uh, that are used to talk about it but the one i'm focusing on today has to do with the concept of substitution john stott who was a british anglican minister says the concept of substitution is crucial to understand both sin and salvation the concept of substitution is crucial to understand both sin and salvation if you want to understand the gospel you have to understand substitution because on the one hand what is sin sin is you substituting yourself for god putting yourself where only god deserves to be in charge of your life you didn't make yourself and when you say, I'm going to call the shots in my own life, what are you saying? You're saying, I'm my own maker, I'm my own creator. When you act as if you are your own maker and your own creator and you're not, it's kind of a cosmic plagiarism. When you put yourself in that place, by the way, you're woefully underqualified for the job of being your own Lord and Savior of your life. And so, to understand this concept even more, we have to understand what really happened it's amazing when we think of the of the nature of sin and we we think of the nature of substitution um, it's important to understand the whys and wherefores of it now notice that Paul said the doctrine of substitution is radically powerful but on the other hand he said Paul did not say for your sins but for our sins now understand Paul includes himself in the place of a sinner. This is an apostle. Paul was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Paul tells us what an incredibly fastidious, godly, religious person he was. He poured over the Bible. He tried to find anything in the Bible that was a command and he tried to do it. He tried to comply with every single fiber of his being in every aspect of God's law yet here he is saying Jesus Christ substituted himself and died for our sins meaning I deserve to die too. Paul is saying my record deserves death there's not one person in this room who would get anywhere close to the attempted righteousness of the Apostle Paul not even in the same universe And he said, Christ died for my sins too. Now if that seems inexplicable to you, read the book of Romans, especially 1-3 through in a very top level summary. Let me say that he spends one chapter talking about pagans, the Gentiles, the people who don't believe the Bible, who don't follow biblical rules of chastity and purity and integrity and so on. But then he turns to people in the Bible and he shows that though externally they're obeying the Bible, inside their motivation is not a love for God, but rather a love of self, indeed their self-righteousness and pride. The ultimate virtue signal. And then in chapter 3 he says, therefore all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No one is righteous. And if somebody's sitting there thinking, well, I am, Paul says, no, not one. No one is really ever seeking God. It's an amazing sp- statement that Paul is saying. The people who all of my life I was taught to despise, the Gentiles, the people who wouldn't want to, I would never want to eat with because they're d- unclean, they don't follow the Bible, they're people I've always despised, now I'm spending my whole life with them. Why? Because we're not really any different. I am really no better than a criminal who slits people's throats And takes their money now you don't really understand the gospel very deeply if you do not see your own heart with that desperation we still want to defend the better angels of our nature we like to think we're better people than we are because our intentions are so fine and yet even the Apostle Paul recognized that that I'm really no better than anyone else in the end, we're all lost in different ways. We violate God's law in different ways. We fail in different ways to love God with all our heart, soul, strength, mind, neighbors as ourselves. We're all equally sinners. We're all equally lost. The prodigal son and the elder brother in the parable of the lost son the elder brother who stayed home who was the good son was as alienated from the father as the uh prodigal just as alienated we're all equally lost we're all equally in need of god's grace and that is the most humanizing doctrine there is what look at paul what turned him from a self-righteous racist into a person who embraces all people as his equals. I will tell you what it is. It is the gospel. The gospel humanized him. Every other religion and philosophy says this is what you must do to get saved. This is what you must do to find God. This is what you must do to save the world. This is what you must do in order to be a good and moral person. In which case, there are always a bunch of people over here not doing what you think they should be done. Therefore, you say, okay, look, they're not doing this. Paul says it doesn't matter. Liberal, conservative. Moral, immoral. Avant-garde, respectable. This race, that race. It doesn't matter. We're all sinners and we all need grace. And so, the biblical concept of substitution is that Christ Jesus went to the cross in your place, and if you have trusted in Him and repented of your sin, you know this is true. God took your sin and placed it upon Him as the sacrificial lamb and then poured out His wrath upon His Son on your behalf. Which is why, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you can never go to hell. Why? Because your sins have already been punished. Infinitely. Jesus did that for you, but not only that, He substituted His life for your life. He obeyed for you God's law, rendered a perfect record. And now, as a result, well, I'll get into that in a minute. I don't want to jump ahead. But as a result, you can be right with God forever. Thirdly, you need to listen fast the gospel. Is about history and the resurrection christ died for our sins according to the scriptures that he was buried that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures and appeared to peter cephas and the twelve and after that more than 500 brothers and sisters at the same time most of whom are still living then he appeared to james the apostles and he appeared to me he's saying it's almost as if he had to come back and make a special trip like i was born at the wrong time but he even appeared to me. That's Paul speaking. What's he talking about? The resurrection. Why does the resurrection of Jesus play an important role in the gospel? It, it, it plays such an important role because it's crucial in that the resurrection of Jesus assures and secures our past and future salvation. First, it assures And secures our past salvation how do you know Jesus's death on the cross actually paid for sin how do you know it actually defeated sin how do you know the punishment was taken how do you know it was paid so that if you believe in him there's no more condemnation for you how do you know well somebody was in debt they were either in slavery or in prison. The way you could be sure the debt had been paid was when they were released, when they got out. Then you knew the debt had been paid. Of course, the wages of sin is death. And when Jesus was sprung from death and burst the bands of death, it was proof positive that the debt had been paid. You Go shopping. And you buy something. You purchase something. And you put it in your bag. And... Um, the amazing thing is if you purchase it you place it in your bag it belongs to you there's nothing more unfortunate or unpleasant than to have some security guard or planes uh, clothesman come up and say have you really bought those things you know underneath accusing you of stealing let me look in your bag you know you're a little irritated you're feeling very bad what do you do Well, you reach in and you pull out that receipt. And if you're like me, you hold it up real close to the face (laughs) of the person. And you say, trouble me not. Be gone. Why? This is proof that your accusation has no validity or merit. Do you know how to do that with the resurrection? What we're celebrating today, if you're a Christian, you have learned to do that when your conscience goes after you because you failed or you've done something really really bad and you're a Christian or your conscience is killing you and keeping you awake at night are you a Christian have you believed in Jesus Christ do you know how to look to the resurrection and say to your conscience trouble me not be gone this is my receipt this proves it was paid in full This stamps paid in full across history in such a way that nobody's ever going to miss it. But the resurrection not only has implications for the past, but it has them for securing and assuring future salvation. Our future salvation is not just being forgiven and going and living in heaven as a soul. Our future is a resurrected body and a new heaven and a new earth and a place without suffering and death. Do you know that? what that's going to be like? It'll be better than any of your favorite fairy tales ever read or watched. But he goes on to say, there's even more proof. If you're skeptical of Christianity, then note that he was seen by Cephas, that's Peter. He was seen by the 12. He was seen by 500 people, most who are alive. Richard Bauckham, in a great book, Jesus and Eyewitnesses, points that these are footnotes. See, if you're writing a serious academic work, which apparently doesn't happen anymore in our culture, people are losing their minds. This is just a little insertion by me. I was reading through Romans 1 about where people see the revelation of God through what He has made, and they suppress the knowledge of God through living in a wicked, unrighteous way. And the Bible says God in judgment hands them over to their passions, so to think. And eventually the last chain is a reprobate mind. Do you know what a reprobate mind is? Somebody out of their mind. People said, is God judging the United States of America? He's been judging ever since this happened. The wrath of God is always constantly being revealed presently. People are losing their minds. But the good news is Christ came through the resurrection to restore us, to make us whole, and that is our living hope. It's the only thing I have any hope in. I have no hope in or of or for anything else. Not ultimately. So, We're going to get a new body, and it's going to be an amazing body, a body like his. But let's continue on as we uh, remember that all of these apostles who witnessed uh, the resurrection and all the people, 500 more, and it's about a 513, but they're even more and uh, if you say such and such this happened well what do you footnote from the hi- historical register in a particular library where the original letter is or something like that he says footnotes are ways to say to the reader what i'm saying is true and the footnote is the source from which you can find out what i'm telling you is true in those days if you were uh, writing not legend but history how do you footnote you said Here are the witnesses who are alive, who saw it. Go check with them. These are the footnotes, these are the sources. These are the hundreds of people who saw the resurrected Jesus with their own eyes. Go talk to them. Most of them are still alive. It's only been 15 to 20 years. Do you see what that means? Paul is saying the resurrection is not a symbol. It's not a nice story. It's not a legend passed down through the ages. People saw him. That's evidence. If that's the case, then the stuff you must long for in life, the kind of world you long for, is available. It's there, believe the gospel. But finally, the gospel is about grace. Paul gets personal toward the end of this passage. He uses the word three times. And the reason why Lloyd-Jones could use a diagnostic question to people and say, are you a Christian? And if they said, well, I'm trying very hard, the reason he knew they didn't understand the core of Christianity was that they did not understand grace. They were basically saying, well, if I work hard enough, then maybe God will overlook this and that and bless me. Maybe I can put him into death." John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress in his autobiography, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners, tells the story of how he probably got converted. Well, he uh, had been reading the Bible, and it just made him feel more and more guilty. But he said one day, he just thought of something. He said something like this, One day I was passing through a field, suddenly I thought of a sentence, Your righteousness is in heaven. He explains how then, with the eyes of faith, putting things he had read in the Bible, in the eyes of faith, he saw Christ sitting at God's right hand and suddenly realized, there is my righteousness. That's my righteousness. God could not say, where's your righteousness today? For it's always right in front of him. Have you ever thought about that? Where's your righteousness today? It's right in front of you, right in front of you. My good heart, frame of heart, could not make my righteousness better. By bad frame of heart could not make my righteousness less or worse. For my righteousness is Jesus Christ. The same yesterday, today, and forever. And so, Bunyan says, my chains fell off. I felt delivery from slavery to guilt and fear. And I saw that all those weak character qualities in my life were like pennies a rich man carries in his pocket. When the gold is safe in a trunk at home. Grace, Bunyan says, get grace. Until the grace penny drops, you haven't got the gospel. It was John Gershner who said he believes many people will be condemned on judgment day. Not because of their sins, but because of their damnable good works. What we have tried to present to God is that which should cause him to accept us and deem us with favor. Oh, no, 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 no. It's only what Christ has done. Only what Christ has done. And it's only by grace. Paul was one of the most influential people in the history of the world. He was brilliant, but he hated Christianity. Yet grace changed him. But how can grace change you? Well, because grace is undeserved. And once you realize God's grace is undeserved, it humbles you. Then when you also realize uh Grace is unconditional because it's undeserved. It takes you down. I'm no different than anybody else because it is unconditional. It brings you back up. I'm always accepted. I'm always loved. I have peace, boldness, because it was costly. God's grace is absolutely free to me, but it's infinitely costly to Him because of what He had to go through on the cross. It turns you into a sacrificial lover of other people. It was not without effect. The Apostle Paul says, you think you worked. He said, I realize I am what I am by the grace of God. He said, but I worked beyond what, why? Because of the gratitude, the overpowering sense of God's grace toward him, energized him, motivated him. You know, it's sad sometimes in the church. You just you can't get people to help. you can't get people to do things because they're too busy, or they uh, you know uh, they just say, "Well, that's not my gift," or you know, "I just I'm in a different phase and stage of my life right now, and I can't really get involved." Well, you know what I want to say to people like that? I'm too nice to say it, but I'm going to say it this morning. Tell it to Jesus. Tell it to jesus if he did what he did and we're sure he did how could you say i'm too busy you're just too busy lose some of your busyness and serve jesus christ by loving your neighbor as yourself you see once grace hits you it doesn't make you go live like a lunatic It doesn't let you become a licentious. If you do that, you ain't got the real disease, okay? Uh, You're missing missing a lot. Once grace gets a hold of you, you can't do enough. You can't do enough to serve Jesus. You know, sometimes I feel like I ought to be running the other way to get away from you because you want to do so much. But there are opportunities to serve Him. And I pray that as a Christian today, Now, what are the core fundamental beliefs of a Christian? What is it that is our core? Let me repeat it. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the 12, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and all the apostles. That is the core of what a Christian believes. And when we see it, it generates in our heart both faith and repentance. Faith is looking outside of myself and laying hold of Christ and depending and relying upon Him and Him only. Repentance occurs simultaneously at the same time. I'm turning to Christ. I'm turning away to everything I was before, whether I was a good, decent, moral person or whether I was the filthiest sinner on the planet Earth that's what a Christian believes and that's how a Christian responds and that's what makes you have forever hope a living assurance and security that everything Christ came to do indicates that everything he will do in the future is guaranteed so we can all drop dead at this moment (laughs) if we're Christians and it'll be the greatest thing that ever happened to you. I always grieve at funerals because I grieve, I miss the person, but I never grieve without hope because I know if I could be that person, there are days like uh, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday of last week when when death didn't look so bad to me. So that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Remember, it is a major life-changing event It isn't something you do, it's something you respond to by faith and repentance. Let us pray. We thank you, Lord, for the gospel. We thank you for the glad and joyful tidings of the gospel. We ask that the undeservedness, the unconditional nature of it, the costliness of it would change us the way it changed Paul, humbling us, empowering us, melting us, tenderizing us, humanizing us. Father, forgive us for not walking in a manner worthy of the gospel, which means we're just not thinking until the power of it begins to change us. We ask that you also teach us how to winsomely tell people that we have found the cure. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.